Coming to you live. Live. And podcasting around the globe. You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast. Guaranteed to tickle your real estate loving ear holes. And now, here's your host, world-renowned TV heartthrob and investor extraordinaire, Ken Corsini. Hey, welcome to the Best Deal Ever show. I am joined by my good buddy, Brett Snodgrass. Brett, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, Ken. So excited to uh, see you again. I feel like I'm talking to Tom Cruise, literally. Tom Cruise. I'm not sure about Tom Cruise. That's an insult to Tom Cruise, unfortunately. <laughs> I know it's been a little while. Brett and I go back. We've been in, a, in a, the Collective Genius together for a couple of years, and uh, it's probably been at least a year since we've seen each other, so it's good to catch up. Yeah, I remember last time you and uh, your wife, uh, Nita, and came, and you guys were talking about uh, charity you guys were supporting. That was awesome, and uh, definitely on board. That's speaking to my heart, man, so uh, good to see you again. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, it's great to see you as well. So since the last time we spoke, I mean, I know that your primary business is located in Indy, but uh, apparently you're not in Indy anymore. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, my family took a turn about a year ago, and we moved two hours north of Indianapolis, a little not a little town, but second biggest city in Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, but it's about two hours north of Indy. But our market's still in Indy. And it's just been great because uh, one of the challenges that I always want to do is just to get out of my business a little bit more. And that's where I got placed. And it forced me to get out. So this year has been awesome. Uh, literally, I have an operations manager, Brian Snyder. And uh, he's been doing an awesome job with the team. The team's still in Indy. And I work remotely now, the kind of the only ones in the company that works remote uh, as the visionary. So I'm thinking of ideas and talking to guys like you and uh, thinking of big things. What's, what's our next step? So it's been pretty cool, man. I am jealous. I got to be honest. The fact that you extracted yourself from your daily business and are able to kind of think at a 30,000 foot view. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've been talking to a lot of CEOs because, you know, it's been one of those things because I've been entrenched in the business for so long. Uh, once you extract yourself out 70, 80% of that time, you're like, what do you do? So I've been kind of drifting and talking to a lot of CEOs uh, just about what do you do with your time? And what really hit me is uh, a lot of CEOs said 20% of your time, you just need to like sit there and, and think. And like, I was like, well, that's not really doing anything. And he's like, well, yeah, it is. You just need to sit and reflect and think about yeah. ideas, right? What it's do you, so what do you true. <laughs> so, so you know what's funny I, I literally make the most progress on my business when I'm driving to the beach because it's like a six-hour drive and Anita even knows and I just let Ken do his thing and I just it's like you process and you think and you come up with the most game-changing ideas that you can yeah. come back and implement in your business right I know it's great and you're going to the beach it's and like you're going to the beach yeah it's a win-win right yes yeah, so you're not thinking about you know all the stressors at work you're thinking how you're going to grow the business when I'm sitting on the beach <laughs> One of my favorite places is um, I have a boat. There's a lake up here near Fort Wayne. Uh, and that's where I go think. So that 20% of my time I go, I sit out, and I feel like I can just think better on a big body of water and, and just kind of soak it in and thoughts come to me. So same. Yeah, it's true because when you're I mean, in the day-to-day, -day, you're in the weeds, man. It's hard to get out of the weeds. You almost have to extract yourself. Like you said, go to a lake or go somewhere quiet and, and then process everything that's going on in the business and how to grow it and what changes to implement. That's very cool. Definitely, definitely. So talk about your business in Indy right now. It's, it's you guys, if I remember, I know it says on the sign behind you, you guys are in wholesaling, right? That's your primary business model? 
Yeah. So I've been doing it 12 years. Uh, got into it around 2007, 2008. Uh, right around that time, right around the market was people were saying it was terrible. Uh, but our, our primary business is called Simple Wholesaling. And yeah, we have a team of about 10 uh, people in Indianapolis. So we have our acquisitions team, dispositions team, and, and closing team. And uh, yeah, we buy and sell properties. So we, we do it a little bit different where some people might call it wholetailing. Uh, I started out signing contracts, double closings, doing things like that. But now uh, we just feel like we can have more options if we buy the property, take them down, clean them out. We can list them on the MLS. We can uh, send them out to our buyers list and we can do, do just different things with them. Sometimes we sell or finance them. Uh, so we have that model as well. So we do about 80% wholetailing, buying and selling properties. And then 20%, we've really gotten into seller financing the properties, which uh, I've been talking to a lot of note guys and figuring out how to be compliant and, and how to do that correctly. And I, I'm really excited about that because that's where our cash flow comes in. Some people might say they want to build cash flow in rentals and the, and the seller financing, the owner financing, carrying the notes. I really like that. Because really? Not, not, Interesting with it <laughs> there's no what do, so the so the question most people are going to have on that i don't want to get too far off the track is you know in the seller financing i love it too but you still have to have your underlying financing how are you typically financing the ones that you then turn around and owner finance uh a lot of times private lenders so so sometimes we you know hold the notes ourselves we own them free and clear but private lenders so instead of going to a private lender and saying hey will you lend money on this particular rental house I'll say, hey, I got this note and mortgage that's backed by this house, this property. Uh, you know, these people owe, this buyer owes $100,000. Would you like to lend $80,000? And this will be your collateral. And so we, we borrow a lot from private individuals. I got, you sort of structure the deal and then kind of turn them loose with the, between the, the lender and the borrower. That's cool. Yeah, I like it. It's Great fun. model, it's, man. Yeah, thank you. You know, especially if we come into any sort of downturn, that's a great model because people well, are going to need. Yeah, because the, you know, the flipping and wholesaling and wholesaling, it's just transactional. So yeah, the downturn comes and you keep half, half to grind it out, grind it out. But at least this could give us some breathing room where, uh, you know, one deal has turned into 20. Now I think we hold 50 to 60 seller financing notes. So now, you know, we, you got $30,000, $35,000, dollars coming in the first of the month. That's like, it's huge. It takes a lot of pressure off. Yeah. Heck yeah. That's, that's huge for cash flow. Well, very cool, man. Well, curious then let's talk about your best deal ever. Was it an owner finance or was it something different? This was something different. And I'm going to take you back to the beginning. And this isn't the deal that I made the most money on. Some people would say, oh, and that's what they focus on. But I feel like that this particular deal was the life-changing deal for me uh, because I had just gotten started. I had done a few deals and then this deal came uh, and then we made enough money to really launch me. The light bulb went off. I said, man, I can do this full time. And this is that particular deal. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's one kind of, uh, you know, it just meets my heart. It's the deal that I always remember that like, that's the deal that changed my life. <laughs> so. love it you've definitely set it up don't disappoint us let's right. so, where did this deal come about and what, what year was it sounds like it was early on uh, this deal was in 2007 and uh i uh, take myself back so i was my parents were both uh high or they were my dad was a high school teacher mom was a kindergarten teacher 
And so I came from a teaching background. So I was substitute school teaching, making ten, fifteen thousand dollars a year, not doing much uh, for myself as far as income. Dad introduced me to this land developer. He would in southern Indiana, he would buy a hundred acre parcels, two hundred acre parcels, and he owned a timber company, and he would harvest the timber and then sell the land. And I was a bird dog for him. So I was looking for land uh, at that time for him. And I found this particular piece of land. I found it uh, on an auction website and it said it was an estate sale. So that light bulb went off estate sale uh, auction website and they weren't auctioning it off. They were just selling it outright. So I was a bird dog for this land guy. And I said, Hey, I like this. It was 126 acres of uh, land in Southern Indiana near a small town called Madison, Madison, Indiana, right next to the Ohio river. And it was all woods. And that's what we look for. So I told the guy who owned the land company about it, but it didn't have enough timber on it. And that was his big thing. It has to have large trees for him to you know, harvest the timber and, and to make some money. So this didn't have enough on it, uh, but it was all woods and it was a pretty nice property. So I was talking to my dad about it and I said, Hey, I think that we should buy this or look at buying this property. So that's kind of how it's set up 126 acres, Southern Indiana. And I drew a picture. If you can, uh, you know, just view this real quick. Um, so this is kind of a road split it and it had 40 acres on one side and it had 86 acres on the other side. And, uh, that's kind of how it was structured. So it was 126 acres total. Cool. I love the drawing by the way. Thank you. I'm not, <laughs> I wasn't an art teacher. I was a math teacher. So yeah, the well, math, that makes sense. Math is good, but the art stinks. <laughs> <laughs> but the point we got the point. So the road went right kind of through the middle of the property. 40 on one side, 86 on the other. So what were you, what were you thinking you were going to do with it? Well, most of the people with this piece of land, it's mostly sold to recreational land or hunters. Uh, you could probably build a cabin on it, uh, do something like that. But what I got really excited about was there was three key components of this deal that I really want to hit home on that somebody uh, should look for. And the first one was this was an estate sale. And so right away I knew, and I started talking to the auction company, the lender, and there was six children involved. And I thought that was really key uh, because they didn't have, you know, they didn't really want the land. They needed to sell it. Plus they were going to divide the money up six ways. Right. So I thought that was really important because when I made the offer, you know, five to $6,000 or $10,000 isn't that much money because split six ways it's, you know, there's not that much of a difference rather than one person getting uh, all the money. So they were asking about 2,000 an acre, so 126 acres. They're asking about $252,000 uh, for this particular property. And that's like recreational Indiana property. And I made them an offer of 1,200 per acre. And a lot of times you're pricing land in this size by the acre. Right. So when you make the offer, you don't say, Hey, I'm going to give you $150,000. You say, Oh, you're asking 2000. I'm going to give you 1200 per acre. And it doesn't sound like that much of a difference, but it realistically was, we offered him $151,200 and that's what we offered. So I thought the estate sale was just a key component and we went back and forth and, and originally they are at, at the end, they ended up accepting our offer. 1200 an acre is what we bought that for 151,000. Yeah. Only in uh, Indiana, right? Yeah. <laughs> not, not Atlanta, man. <laughs> That's amazing. 1,200 an acre. And it's so, it was wooded, but it wasn't necessarily good for foresting, it sounds like. Yeah, it had a lot of pine trees, a lot of brush, uh, you know, not, not big trees. I mean, when you're timbering, you're looking for 
you know, 20 inches in diameter, uh, yeah. night, you know, tall logs, things like that. So it wasn't good for that, but it was great for hunting ground or rec- four wheeling stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you took it down. So what were your thoughts? What were you guys thinking you were going to do with it? Well, what I loved about it was, is a lot of times when you buy a piece of land like that, uh, not a lot of people can afford a recreational piece that much money because, you know, they're not building on it. That's just for fun, hunting, things like that. But the road split it right down. So 40 acres and 86 acres. So I thought that was key because I could split the land and sell the 40 acres. And then I could sell the 86 acres separately uh, very easily because the road split. It had a lot of road frontage. So we were just going to basically take it. Um, and then resell it 40 acres and, and 86 acres and how I financed it. I thought this was really cool. Cause I didn't have $151,000 dad. He was teaching. He, he didn't have that type of money, uh, but we'd done a few deals. We had about 26, $30,000 to put down on the property. And, uh, I used to go to the local Madison, Indiana meetup, which there was like five investors that would go here drinking <laughs> coffee. And I met this 72 year old man named Tuffy. And Tuffy was one, I mean, I didn't know any other private lenders, but he was a private lender and he would usually lend about 12% interest. And that's how we borrowed $126,000. And then dad and I put in 26,000 and bought the property. Um, but I, I remember Tuffy borrowed it 12% interest and he, you know, he helped us out. So that's how we, how we bought the property. That's fantastic. Cause you know, it's not easy to come by uh, land loans. I mean, banks don't usually want to touch it. I mean, and, and if they do, you're putting 50% down. So the fact that you found a private lender, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. He really helped us out. So that was, that was great. So we bought the land. Uh, what were we going to do with it? Like I said, we, uh, we wanted to survey it because, and that was the other key component is, is the survey. So we started surveying it before we bought it because it hadn't been surveyed in like a hundred years. <laughs> so, so, the, right. so the deed said 126 acres, but as you know, back then the surveys, they were done a lot different. So this particular survey back a hundred years ago was like, Hey, go to the big rock and then turn left <laughs> right. and go to the big Oak tree yeah. in the middle, like that. So that's how it was surveyed. So we wanted to get an up-to-date survey on the particular property. So we hired a surveyor and he was taking forever. I remember we were two months in under contract and the survey still was not done. And I was hounding him, dude, what are you, do? what are you doing? He said, it was 126 acres. I got to, you know, make sure it's right. The old survey is, I got to start from scratch and all this. And, um, but then the surveyor calls me, he says, Hey man, I'm, I'm almost done. But you know, I still got about a month out. But I think, you know, I don't think this is going to survey less than 126 acres. In fact, if it's going to be anything, it's actually, it could be more than 126 acres. So we went ahead and took the risk that people mm-hmm. wanted to close on it, the estate sale. So we went ahead and closed on it with 126 acres on the deed. And then we said, hey, we'll do the survey afterwards. And what happened was we bought the property. The uh, surveyor ended up finishing it a couple weeks later. And it surveyed out for 133 acres. No way. Yeah. Bonus acreage. Bonus acreage. And like I said, you price it by the acres. So if we're going to sell it for 1500 1800 an acre, we just made another 10 grand because it was, yeah, bonus, man. So that was really cool. <laughs> Icing on top. That's amazing. That's right. That's right. So um, 
yeah, just to kind of end in it. So we bought the property. Tuffy was the financing. We got the survey done. It ended up being 133 acres. And uh, we put it out there on some websites, land websites. At that, at that time, like landandfarm.com. Sure. That was huge. Yeah. Uh, land Watch, I think it might have been called something different. But uh, Land Watch is a big land site. So we put yep. it on all the land sites. We put it on Craigslist. We put it, I think, in the newspaper. That was even, you know, that was pretty big back then. <laughs> right. I know. that crazy. Social media wasn't like crazy back then. But ended up, we had two hunters that came. And uh, so the one side ended up instead of 86 acres, it was 93 acres because we got seven bonus acres. And we ended up selling it for seventeen fifty per acre. So we bought Both it. Both sides or just one side? Both sides together. So I think together, one guy bought 40 acres and he just wanted a small, he couldn't afford the whole thing. So he just wanted the 40, the road split it. So he bought that for 1750 an acre. And then another gentleman bought the 93 acres for 1750 an acre. And it ended up being, uh, so 1750 an acre, we ended up selling it for $232,750. Wow. So we bought it for one fifty one. 200 we sold it for 232 and given closing costs and, and Tuffy's financing and and we had it for about two months so this deal took two months wow and, and we made about 80 a uh, little over eighty thousand dollars on that one deal and I know some of your guests Ken might say they're probably going to talk about making a million dollars I don't know but when you're making substitute school teaching I'm used to making ten to twenty thousand dollars a year. Uh, I just started with the land business as a bird dog, and I was making maybe thirty thousand with him. And I just doubled my income in a year on one deal. That's when I was like, "Man, this is something!" And I and I went full bore. So I don't I don't care who you are. Eighty grand's a lot of money. It is, especially yeah. if you're working a full time job as a teacher or whatever. You're, I mean, eighty grand on the side is a lot of money, and that would convince a lot of people. Okay, I need to do this full time. Definitely. And so was that your last year teaching? Is this, was this sort of the impetus to get you out of teaching? Yeah, it was. Uh, this, that was my last year substitute teaching. I still work with the land guy. And, uh, and then I got introduced to another uh, wholesaling company and I was working with them kind of as they're selling their properties to investors. Uh, so I was still doing stuff on the side for about a year and a half until I went full time. And, uh, but this is the one that really, yeah, just the icing man just got me I could spend money on marketing, spend money on deals, and it really helped me scale the business. Um, so, but I would really highly recommend, I, like people wanted to go full-time right away. I did it for a year and a half part-time before. And really what, when the light bulb kind of went off, I was doing these other deals is when I could replace that 30, 40,000 consistently. I wanted to know, you know, that, was this a fluke? Would this ever yeah. happen? I, I didn't know. And I needed to make sure this was consistent before I went full-time. Yeah. So, so somebody's listening to this and they're sitting in their day job. Maybe they're at work right now, secretly sneaking this video because they're so into real estate. What advice would you give them? I mean, kind of based on this story, uh, what, what should they do if they're interested in getting into real estate? Yeah. My advice is always, um, I was able to just build relationships and build partnerships. If I didn't have Tuffy on this deal, I couldn't have did it. Yeah. Right? So that was a great partnership for me. My dad, he, he helped partner with me on this particular deal uh, and helped just give me confidence. I knew I wasn't just doing this on my own. So get around people that you can build relationships with and partnerships with, not necessarily, doesn't have to be an official partnership, but just 
get around those types of people where when a deal comes, you're ready, you're prepared. Yeah. Uh, and then get some sort of like mentorship. That That's always advice uh, that I always um, give people. Just don't reinvent the wheel. Do just what everybody else uh, guys are actually doing. But I think the biggest thing for me was this deal just gave me so much confidence. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're in the trenches and you're looking for deals and you've been doing, you know, digging for a year, a couple of years, I'm just gonna tell you, it just takes, it just takes one deal to absolutely change your life. That if you found just being at the right place at the right time around the right people, your life literally can be changed. Because if you're working a job right now, you're making 40 K a year, but you, this deal came across your desk and you made 80 grand on it, you would have made twice your income on one particular deal. And it literally can change your life. So I guess don't quit yeah. and find that one deal, be at the right place at the right time. But in order to be at the right place at the right time, you have to be at a lot of places. That's right. Well, and you were, so for you, you were probably scouring the, the internet and watching these auction sites and you tripped over this deal, figured out it was probate and like the light bulb went off. Hey, there's opportunity here if I negotiate this right. And sure enough, you turned it into an opportunity. Yeah. And this is one particular deal, but the deals I didn't tell you about was the hundred deals that I tried to negotiate that didn't happen. Right? That's right. Good point. So this is a lot of work. This sounds really, really easy. But the hard part was, you know, those negotiation rejections on those hundred other ones that I tried to get to. That's a really good point. Now you were, you were sifting through potential opportunities until you found this one and, and it worked. And it, it's funny, I always tell, we, we have some students here in Atlanta that we work with. It's always, it's always like once you do that first deal, it's like get the first deal under your belt. And it's like then it just starts, the momentum kicks in. But it's for whatever reason, once you get over the hump of that first one, then they start sort of in succession happening for you. Do you feel that way? Oh yeah, I definitely, um, yeah, I definitely feel that way. Momentum is just key. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, I maybe date myself, but remember playing the NBA jam, the basketball game, video games, I don't know, but NBA jam. It was like, <laughs> that might've been after me actually. That's a <laughs> probably was, <laughs> but NBA jam, if you hit a few shots in a row, you get the momentum and it says, man, you're on fire. And I always relate to that because if you get a couple of deals under your belt, you get the confidence and you feel like you can do about anything yeah. because right now uh, back then I was really scared about this deal. I was really scared about getting deals under contract, but now like we're doing 25, 30 deals in a month. And it's like, it's like eating breakfast. Like you just, we just kind of do it. Right. And we don't really think right. about it. We right. Just be confidence in it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, really well said. Well, Brett, this was really good. I, I love land deals too. There's something about land that's just, I don't know, owning a whole, we, we own a hundred some acres up here in Georgia. It's the same thing. It's like you want to get the best price and then knowing that you own it. There's something just exciting about land. So I think this is our first land deal that we've done on the, on the show. So this was a really good one, man. And especially for, for, for the fact that you were not doing this full time. I think that inspires a lot of folks that are not in the business full time, but want to be and see that you had success doing it. So Brett, I really appreciate it, man. It's good catching up with you. I appreciate the story. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it, man. All right. Take care. All right. Sit tight, you Deal Farm listeners. We've got more coming up in just a second. But for right now, I want you to do something for me. I want you to pick up your phone. Now, if you're driving, just wait till you get to the next stoplight. I want you to go to your Amazon app. I want you to type in Profit Like the Pros. You'll see my paperback book published by Bigger Pockets come up. Okay, now just hit the order button. See how easy that was? 
Here's the deal, in just two days, you're gonna be enjoying 25 amazing stories of seasoned investors sourcing and funding and profiting from all types of real estate investments. Okay, back to the show, except in this segment, we're gonna talk about the deals that didn't go so well. Hope you enjoy. So I am joined by my good friend, Brett Snodgrass out of Indianapolis. Brett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. All right, man. Let's hear it. We want to hear about your worst deal ever. <laughs> I don't know, man. I had to break out. I got a whole list of dogs with fleas that I've had to dig <laughs> out. So uh, <laughs> one is, is key. But when you flip you know, a couple thousand houses, you're going to have yeah, quite a few. So my worst deal ever... I would probably say there was a deal, and we're in Indianapolis, uh, but we also buy in some of the surrounding counties. So there's a city called Carmel, just north of uh, Indianapolis, and it's been voted one of the best cities to live in by some magazines and things like that. So whenever you can buy a house in Carmel, everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. We live in Carmel. They call it Carmel here. Right, uh, right. Like California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's no Pebble Beach. Yeah, yeah. So we're in Indianapolis, though. We're typically buying fifty thousand to one hundred thousand dollars houses. That's kind of like our bread and butter. But we found this house in Carmel. It was two hundred and twelve thousand uh, dollars. That was the purchase price, and um, the ARV was about three twenty. We thought it was in a really nice neighborhood in Carmel, and we were going to flip this one. So I was going. I was trying to be, be like Ken Corsini and <laughs> TV. I was like, oh man, if they can do it, like I can, I can do this. And we're usually wholesaling houses, but I said, hey, let's, let's flip this one. This is going to be great. So bought it for 212 ended up, we thought it would take maybe, I don't know, 30, $40,000 in rehab. And I'm not a very good rehabber. So that's probably, that, that was replacing, this was a 3000 square foot house. So we had to replace the roof, we had to replace the, all the flooring, painting and a bunch of bathroom stuff, stuff like that. So Ended up, it, it cost us a lot more. Yeah, that's uh, what it sounds like. 3,000 square feet, you're going to spend more yeah. than 30 or 40 grand. Yeah. So I'm rehabbing. I always spend more than I, than I thought, and it always takes me a longer amount of time. So it took us, we thought we could do it in a couple months. It took us about six months. Uh, we thought 30, 40 grand ended up costing us about 60 to 70 grand. Oof. So at the end of the day, we had about 260, 270-ish uh, into the property um, after the rehab and all the financing and everything like that. And we put it on the market. And again, we're not used to rehabbing like higher end houses in Indiana, Carmel. This is a, it's not like crazy high end, but it's, it's just a nice house. And people that are buying three to $400,000 houses, they expect, they expect something, right, Ken? I don't yeah, know. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you rehab below what the market dictates, you're going to get less than what the market's getting. Yeah, definitely. So we put it out there for about three thirty. Didn't get a lot of bites. Ended up months, two months, three months goes by. We're like, oh my gosh, it started to be just a big dog. So we start lowering the price, you know, 220 or uh, 320, 315. Ended up, we ended up selling it six to seven months later. And after all the financing costs, uh, after all the commissions, taxes, plus they do the inspections and oh, we're yeah. dealing. I think we had to spend another five to 10 grand on the inspection responses. Um, we end up walking away with a lot less money than what we had in it. And we end up losing $29,000 on that particular house. Uh, so, so that was a great deal, Ken. Uh, yeah. We were in you know, nine months, rehabbed it, spent a whole lot of money and not a, 
lot of time, a lot of sleepless nights on that particular house and ended up losing 29 grand. So that's probably Painful. one of the worst. Yeah. One of the worst ones I've ever done. Um, but the learning thing I got a, about it was, is stick to what you're good at. I was not good at rehabbing. Yeah. Uh, and I was not good at lug, you know, higher end houses. I was more good at 50 to a hundred thousand dollar houses. So this, we rehabbed this one. It was a little bit of a higher end house and we just weren't, weren't good at it. So it bit us. So yeah. I just say, you're in this business, just do, do what you do well, man. Yeah. No, that's a good lesson learned. It is, especially if you're not used to higher end rehabs, understanding, well, what it, what it takes, you know, a large square footage house just to fix it, but then also to make sure you're rehabbing it to the standards of that area. Cause yeah. if it's not, man, people, people will point it out in a heartbeat and they'll move on to the next house. Yeah. I need to learn from you, man. We need to get our light fixture. <laughs> you know, I, I just buy them from Lowe's and that's just, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to do it. Yeah. Well, Hey, I'll, I'll be honest, man. If $29,000 loss is your worst deal, you're still doing pretty good, man. I've got you beat <laughs> multiple times over. So stick to wholesaling. I it's probably should take that advice myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Brett. Well, I appreciate it, man. This was a good one. All right. Thanks, kid. All right. Talk soon. Hey, Deal Farm listeners. If you haven't heard, I just recently released a book through Bigger Pockets Publishing called Profit Like the Pros. If you dig the best deal ever podcasts, you will definitely want to get your hands on this book. I take 25 stories from some of the top investors in the country and distill them down into 25 separate chapters not only entertain you, but educate and inspire you in all different facets of real estate investing. From wholesaling and flipping to self-storage, multifamily and commercial, we get into the details of short sales, subject twos, and even land flipping. And whether you're a brand new investor or you have years of experience under your belt, I promise you this book will engage you. If you would, take a minute, go to Amazon and order this book, Profit Like the Pros. And if you like it, leave us a review. Thanks so much, folks, and I will see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.